Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that just got its high score in Tiny Wings. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the bonkers of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. All right, today we are covering Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 1, Episodes 8 to 11, The Well, Repairs, The Bridge, and The Magical Place. Episode 8 is The Well, which aired on November 19th, 2013. Ward is exposed to an Asgardian staff that brings out his inner demons, and we learn a little more about his past, and Lonnie writes copy for Josh that he has to resist (laughs) making dirty jokes about. Wait, wait, where's the dirty joke in that? (laughs) Ward is exposed to an Asgardian staff. Oh. <laughs> All right. All right. No, that's okay. <laughs> I didn't quite see it that way, but that's fine. Episode nine is Repairs and aired on November 26, 2013. The team investigates a woman who seems to have telekinetic powers, but it's really a ghost who brings up old issues for May. Episode 10 is The Bridge and aired on December 10th, 2013. Mike Peterson returns to lend his assistance as the agents battle Centipede once again. And episode 11 is The Magical Place, as Centipede forces Coulson to face what really happened to him after he died in the Battle of New York. All right, so what you got for me for uh, the comic book history, which has been renamed now, I see in the script, to Four Color Facts. That's right. We're jazzing this up a little bit. That's (laughs) right. These are four color facts, which I probably have to explain that name a little bit, actually. Maybe. Maybe you should. Okay. So once upon a time, before there was digital printing, and to an extent this is still happening, mm-hmm. uh, but just it, the, the end product looks very different. Everything printed in color went through what's called four color process. Mm-hmm. It was all a mix of other colors, which are not red, green, blue, and whatever. Comic books used to be printed in these bold, bright, primary four colors, right? And listen, they're still four color now. It's just that the colors are much more robust and digitally mm-hmm. printed and all that good stuff. So yes. welcome to the inaugural four color facts. <laughs> it's right. the same as comic book history, but with a little more pizzazz. A little more. I, I love adding pizzazz. That's my favorite thing to add. I'm bedazzling it like <laughs> Thanos in his glove, man. <laughs> right. So what you got for us? All right. So as is becoming the regular with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., they do not dip hard into the comic book well mm-hmm. very often. Mm-hmm. But thanks to Ward being exposed to an Asgardian staff, mm-hmm. I feel like this is an opportunity to discuss human beings in the Marvel Universe who have been empowered by Asgardian magic. I love it. Now, there are several of these. I'm going to hit the highest of high points. Mm-hmm. The first is an entire team of supervillains, the Wrecking Crew. All right. They are led and named by the Wrecker, whose real name is Dirk (laughs) Girthwaite. That's a great name. Even before he had superpowers, he got a crowbar and a name and a gimmick. All right. He would break into places, steal stuff, and then just wreck up the joint with the crowbar (laughs) and call himself the Wrecker. So just file that away. That is the guy before he has superpowers. (laughs) A real 
top shelf criminal mind. There you go. Yes. <laughs> In one of those let's give Loki a really bad day situations, <laughs> the wrecker breaks into a motel room that Loki was using, mm-hmm. saps him unconscious, and takes his helmet just to be kind of a douche. <laughs> This happens to be about the time that the Norn Queen, Kermilla, uh-huh. shows up to give Loki more power. He has made a deal with her. She is going to give him the power to go physically toe-to-toe with Thor. But it's the Wrecker wearing Loki's helmet. Carmilla only sees him from behind and accidentally gives the power to the Wrecker instead. <laughs> now, the Wrecker has an indestructible magical crowbar... Yeah, and it's all an accident. He just needed a motel room to hide out in, and it happened to be Loki's. And he knocked him smooth out and took his helmet. Now, the magical crowbar mm-hmm. is kind of like Mjolnir light. Mm-hmm. He can throw it. It returns to him. It's indestructible. It it doesn't make, like, bolts of energy on its own, but it can absorb Okay. Energy that shot mm-hmm. at him and return it to people. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's that kind of thing. Okay. Um, physically, he now has the characteristics of like an above average as guardian. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he's very, very strong, you know, superhuman stamina, um, bulletproof, and, and able to take a, at least a couple of punches from Thor. He is not on Thor's level, but he is... Yeah. Very strong, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Through through a series of machinations that don't matter as much as the outcome. Yeah. He shared his power with a bunch of other low rent hoods and one PhD. <laughs> well, because you got to have the PhD in there. Well, big shocker. It was the PhD's idea. So they all held on to the crowbar when lightning struck it. Mm-hmm. And it shared his power with the rest of what would become known as the Wrecking Crew. All right. I love it. <laughs> Buckle up for these. <laughs> Henry Camp became Bulldozer. Uh-huh. He wears a metal helmet and mostly fights by ramming his victim's head first. <laughs> Clearly, he's a genius. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Cracking me up so much. Wait, wait for this one. Brian Philip Kaluski becomes pile driver. Mm-hmm. Sharing in the wrecker's power gave this ex farmhand giant hands. Get it? <laughs> now he punches you with fists like pile drivers. Get it? Wow. <laughs> Doctor Elliot Franklin mm-hmm. became Thunderball. Yeah. He is the actual thinker of the team, what with being the PhD and not a low rent hood. Right. And he wields a huge demolition ball on a chain that is mostly indestructible. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty serious. So instead of a classic five-man band with a hero, a lancer, a smart guy, a big guy, and the heart, we basically have a bunch of big guys and a smart guy and nothing else. Yep. All That's right. pretty much, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The re- there, as you can imagine, the Wrecking Crew not the most successful bunch of supervillains. I imagine not, but it's got to be fun to watch them work. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, I mentioned uh, the time that the um, Avengers Mansion was attacked and mm-hmm. uh, Jarvis was beaten nearly to death by somebody. Mm-hmm. It's the Wrecker. Oh, <laughs> so 
you know. He also nearly beat Hercules, yes, that Hercules, wow. to death at the same time. What at the same time? Well, I mean, look. So what, he's a multitasker. I mean, that same is what attack. you're saying? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All so right. I mean, yeah. So they're kind of goofballs, but they're yeah. like ridiculously overpowered goofballs. Oh my god! Which is kind of great, right? Like it's yeah. not like Thor is known to be one of our great thinkers. Exactly. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so to have, you know, several low rent hoods receive the kind of power that lets them go toe to toe with Thor. Mm-hmm actually makes a lot of sense. And when they go fight somebody who isn't Thor, that person is usually in a lot of trouble. I imagine they would be, yeah. Yeah. So, wow. so yeah, the Wrecking Crew are fun. I I, I approve of them heartily. Um, they're kind of the... They are to Thor what a lot of, like, Spider-Man's villains are, which is like, well, we've got one gimmick and one power, right? but it kind of puts us way over the top, you know? <laughs> I love it. Another fine example of human beings empowered by Asgardian business is Thunderstrike. Mm -hmm. Eric Masterson was an architect who knew Thor and was wounded in a battle involving the Thunder God, like a hospital fell on him or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Even later than that, Eric is mortally wounded some more (laughs) and Thor gets locked into his mind so that he could take on Thor's body and power in order to not die. Wow. Now, narratively, this just gives the added benefit of Thor having a secret identity again for a minute. Sure. Mm -hmm. Right? Later, Thor was freed, but he actually decided Eric had been doing a great job, so he gives Mjolnir to Eric so he could continue on as Thor on Earth. Mm -hmm. Sometime after that, Thor took his hammer back, but Odin created a mace with many of the same abilities of Mjolnir and called it Thunderstrike. Uh Uh-huh. So taking the name of his mace, Mm -hmm. Eric becomes one of the many 90s superheroes that wore jackets and were supposedly more edgy and successful than the classic versions of a hero. Arrested development narrator, he was neither of those. (laughs) For your reference, Eric Mm -hmm. Masterson first appeared like as a supporting character in Thor number 391, which Mm -hmm. is in 1988. Mm -hmm. He merged with Thor in... Thor number 408, and was his sort of secret identity until Thor 432, mm-hmm. where he became Thor full-time and appeared as the title character until Thor 459, and then he was introduced as Thunderstrike in his own series, June 1993, and it ran for about two years. Wow. That's complex. I mean, you can kind of see the through line, right? Yeah. And at the time, it was kind of like, yeah, Odin's just handing out maces and hammers to people if they seem pretty legit. Yeah, right. (laughs) Because this is not terribly distant in time from when terrifying horse monster Beta Ray Bill also gets a hammer. (laughs) We're saving that chat until later. All All right. right. All right. My last human being who has been empowered by Asgardian whatnots is Mm -hmm. Jane Foster. No way. Yes. Awesome. Give her something interesting to do. Absolutely give her something interesting to do. So after Thor was found unworthy and could no longer lift his hammer, (laughs) an unidentified woman picked up the hammer and fought as the new Mighty Thor. Mm This was a big secret for a long time, like in the comics, that we didn't know who it was that was being Thor now. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I'm declaring the statute of limitations up, and turns out it was Jane Foster. Wow. She first appears in Thor Volume 4, Number 1 in 2014. Okay. Okay. Now, I consider this to be a pretty dope idea. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But it was coupled with Jane having recently been diagnosed with cancer. Oh, God. And while she was able to fight as Thor better in many ways than the Odinson had been, Mm -hmm. the transformations between her regular body and her Thor body purged all the toxins from her body. Okay. Including the chemotherapy. Uh Uh-huh. But not the cancer, which seems kind of stupid. Right. Wow. I'm going to tell you that this is all part of a long-running series written by Jason Aaron, Mm -hmm. and it spans multiple titles, but it's all centered around Thor and, you know, Thor-adjacent people like like Jane. Okay. And I am led to believe that largely this is an amazing run, but there's a bunch of little details that strike me as stupendously stupid, and I just haven't gotten around to reading it because I'm afraid I'm going to get tripped up on the details. (laughs) Right. One of them being... The chemotherapy goes away, but the cancer does not. Right. And also, the reason that Thor finds himself unworthy doesn't really seem like as good a reveal as mm-hmm. it ought to be. Okay. But, mm-hmm. well, I'm not that one I'm not going to give away because the, the Jane Foster as Thor thing was a secret for a while, but it's pretty much, you know, blown yeah. the doors off at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I also have... A little bit of chat about ghosts and demons in superhero comics. That is really interesting to me because of sort of that that stretch into fantasy space, which I guess, you know, the MCU covers, you know, quite a, a wide berth, you know, taking us from, you know, hard sci-fi to fantasy spaces, you know. But I think usually, and maybe this isn't true in the comics, but usually don't we kind of stay on the side of, of sci-fi? Oh, good Lord, no. No, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, for one thing, the Asgardians in the Marvel comics are mm-hmm. nowhere near as cut and dried as aliens. Okay, okay. I mean, they've been treated as aliens, and sometimes they've been treated as basically space aliens, but they come from another dimension. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But just as often, they have been treated as actual mythological beings who are affected by belief in them and by cycles of myth and things like that. Wow. Okay. The Loki Agent of Asgard stories that Mm -hmm. I recommended to you very highly are predicated on the idea that Loki is a story that is recreating himself. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. I'm telling you on a variety of levels, I think you'd really like that one. I think I would. But that will show you just, that's just Asgardians Mm -hmm. as far as, you know, the scale can be turned up or down as necessary. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. But as much as you have, you know, right from the beginning, guys like Superman, who are pretty obviously science fiction influenced. Right. Mm -hmm. You've also got like Dr. Fate, Mm -hmm. who is right out of the gate, you know, a magic using crime fighter, you know. Uh One of the reasons that I try very hard to come up with definitions for what superheroes are is not so that I can declare what things are and aren't. It's because superheroes are able to absorb so many things from other genres. Right. Mm -hmm. That I have to kind of know when it's no longer a superhero story, right? Like, when have we absorbed so much that we've moved on? Yeah. And this starts right from jump because you've got science fiction guy with Superman. You've Mm -hmm. got street crime, like detective stuff with Batman. Mm -hmm. You've got myth and fantasy with Wonder Woman. You have straight up sorcery with Dr. Fate. Mm -hmm. And those are all with by 1940, 1941. Wow. Yeah. And then it just continues that way, including in the Marvel Universe, because the Asgardians are a little weird and Mm -hmm. people still aren't sure what's going on with Dr. Strange. Right. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's real all over the place. And I'll give you an example right here. (laughs) 
Etrigan the Demon. Mm-hmm. Originally created by Jack Kirby. Yay! Yay! In the Demon... Everybody drink. <laughs> right. <laughs> In the Demon Number 1, 1972. Etrigan is the son of the demon Belial and Merlin's half-brother. Yes, that Merlin. Mm-hmm. In some of the Arthurian legends, Merlin is a son of Satan. Oh, okay. I mean, those are kind of way later when you start to get uh, like more Christian mythology added on to older stories, right. you know. Mm-hmm. But in some of those stories, Merlin is Satan's son. And in this case, we make it Belial because saying Satan is complicated. <laughs> right. Merlin attempts to gain Etrigan's secrets, but when he cannot, he forces the demon to join bodily and soul. I guess, Mm -hmm. to Jason Blood, a young Mm -hmm. man from Camelot whose betrayal of Arthur led to Morgan Le Fay causing the kingdom to fall. Mm -hmm. He betrayed Camelot to Morgan Le Fay. She sweeps in and takes over the place. It's all very bad. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he is punished by Merlin by being connected to Etrigan. So now Jason is immortal. Okay. And can, with a rhyming verse, because Etrigan is a rhyming demon... (laughs) There are ranks in hell, and the higher the rank, the more you become a rhyming demon. The yes, more you have I'm to serious. Rhyme. <laughs> oh yeah. So wow. with a rhyming verse, Jason becomes Etrigan, mm-hmm. and then usually fights the forces of supernatural evil. And often, but not always, this is Morgan Le Fay. <laughs> For the people at home, and because I really enjoy it, this is the rhyming verse he has to say in order to change. Mm-hmm. Change, change, O form of man. Free the prince forever damned. Free the might from fleshy mire. Boil the blood in the heart of fire. Gone, gone, O form of man, and rise the demon Etrigan. Wow. To turn back, he says, gone now, O Etrigan, and rise once more, the form of man. Wow. All right. The power of language, the power of words, which is often used in kind of magical fantasy stories because fantasy is really about having that mythological space, that metaphorical space. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. I I always love the power of language, like the power of using language in spells, you know, and how incredibly powerful that is. Just saying something the right way can bring about a magical effect. So that's kind of neat. You may be aware of this, but the etymology for our word spell, as in make words out of letters, Mm -hmm. is the same as casting spells. Yeah. 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 And grimoires, you know, wizards' books of spells, is the same root that we get grammar from. Wow. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. So language is the magic. Yes. Yeah. I love it. And then sometimes you just have ghosts. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. Why not? Like, for instance, gentleman ghost. Ooh, a gentleman, no less. Well, you know, more or less, we'll talk about it. So (laughs) first appearing in Flash Comics number 88, 1947, Mm -hmm. we are introduced to Gentleman Jim Craddock, a notorious highwayman in the 19th century English countryside. Mm -hmm. He considers himself a bit of a romantic figure and wears gentleman's clothes like a top hat and a monocle to increase his legend as a highwayman. All right. Mm -hmm. Eventually, he takes his crime spree to America, where he runs into Western crime fighters Nighthawk and Cinnamon. Ah, Cinnamon. Who lynch him. Okay. (laughs) Well, it's the West. What do you want? Sure. I mean, that happens. For some reason, he returns to life as a phantom and is cursed to walk the earth until his killers also pass on to a higher plane of existence. Uh Uh-huh. Bad news for him. (laughs) 
Nighthawk and Cinnamon are the reincarnations of ancient Egyptian royalty. Wow. Prince Khufu and Chayara. And due to their exposure to the alien and mystical element Nth Metal, those two will always be reincarnated and will always find one another. Wow. They can never fully pass on, and neither can Craddock. And honestly, he's pretty pissed about it. Sure, I imagine. Now, we find out about all this because Khufu and Chayara are reincarnated as Hawkman and Hawkwoman, and Gentleman <laughs> Ghost becomes a recurring nemesis of theirs all throughout the 1940s. Wow. All right. Well, so, that's yes, ghosts, demons, sorcerers, also guys from other planets. There you go. All sorts of <laughs> crazy stuff. steals it all. Arthurian legend. Yeah. Just all mixed up in there. Just borrow from everything. I like it. I mean, I this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do something about the MCU. Because the expanse of the universe is just so incredibly broad. Like, it just covers everything. And within a particular story, you usually stay within one kind of space. You know? But mm -hmm. here we have so many things interacting from entirely different worlds, entirely different kinds of stories. And it's really funny. All right. Well, that's fascinating. I absolutely loved that. And I cannot wait until you have to like really reach into the, the deep well of Marvel history to pull out stuff for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. This is becoming very amusing for me. Um, and I get to go into the easy part, which is just above the line, right? Our segment on who wrote and who directed these things before we start talking about it. I have a real easy job. Um, so episode number eight, The Well, was written by Monica Owusu-Breen. This is Breen's first script for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. She's also co-executive producer for the first three seasons, so we're going to see her a fair bit. And this episode is directed by Jonathan Frakes, who some of you might remember as number one from Star Trek The Next Generation. So it's always fun to kind of see actors moving into the directorial space because I think that they can really understand what it is they need to get from the actors. I always think that's really fun. He's um, also sort of notoriously well known for getting things done quickly. Yeah, is he really? Like that's how know. he moved behind the camera on TNG apparently. So oh. <laughs> good for him. I like it. Also, he is married to Jeannie Francis, who played Laura Spencer on uh, General Hospital back in the eighties when I was watching it. So. Another little piece of information that, I don't know, is really pretty useless. Repairs was written by Marissa Tancheroen and Jed Whedon. These are the two showrunners. Jed Whedon is Joss Whedon's brother and Marissa is his wife. So this is very much a family affair in this uh, in this show. Um, it is also the first of 11 episodes to be directed through the run of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to date by Billy Geirhart. So, um, so we're starting to kind of get our team put together you know the first season you have a bunch of people kind of coming in and the team sort of coalesces from that and then you're going to be seeing a lot of these names over and over and over again the bridge was written by shalisha francis who will return to write one more episode for agents of shield later this season with yes men and this episode was directed by john terleski who will also return later for one more episode season three is the inside man but neither one of them are going to become like big you know permanent fixtures within the agents of shield kind of above the line crew and then our last episode, The Magical Place, was written by Paul Zabzewski and Brent Fletcher, both staff writers for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, it was directed by Kevin Hooks, who will return in later seasons to direct two more episodes. But Zabzewski and Fletcher are absolutely, you know, uh, starting team players for uh, for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So they're going to be around a lot and they really know, um, know the story and know what they're trying to do. So, I mean, overall, as happens a lot with, you know, the first season, um, we're, we're kind of 
of giving people a chance to to pinch hit. There's also requirements from the various writers and directors guilds out in Hollywood that every TV show have a certain number of freelancers every season to give people a chance to come in and work on these shows. Uh, so we're going to be seeing some unfamiliar names sort of pop in and out. But as we move forward, we're going to see the team really coalesce into into regular players that we're gonna we're gonna see doing this stuff a lot. And now I think we're ready to start talking about the show. So The Well, right? This is the one with uh, Peter McNichol playing an Asgardian warrior who's been here for a thousand years, um, retrieving this staff that makes people completely, you know, crazy. Um, And uh, what did you think about that? Having this background in, um, you know, Asgardian magic and all this kind of stuff, what did you think about The Well? So looking back at some of our previous discussions, Mm -hmm. when I said that I want Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to sort of play in the sandbox of the MCU. Yeah. I think this might be an example of what I'm talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. I I mean, it has nothing to do with any of the movies. Uh Uh-huh. It just takes a piece of the lore that they kind of breezed past and threw away. Like, of course, Odin came and fought frost giants on Earth. That's how we came to worship Norse gods. Exactly. We just cruise past it, but we turn that tidbit into this whole other story that touches that stuff but has nothing to do with it technically you know yeah i love that we have a Real side smart. story you know we yeah. have a side story that's not it's not feeding off of the main story i mean we just finished thor the dark world and that of course the big climactic moment in that happened in london they're in england you know addressing some of the um you know the the remains of, of what's left of the place right, right? <laughs> um you know and going through and and getting all of the the little artifacts and the pieces of alien technology and whatever and putting that all away and of course somebody has to do that job so I mean that's kind of fun to have S.H.I.E.L.D. come in and be a part of that but then we've got this side story you know this thing like that has to do with not what just happened you know we, we reference vaguely Thor the Dark World but really what we're talking about is what happened you know after that that coming here to um, to defend against the Frost Giants and here we have an Asgardian who fell in love with earth and just wanted to stay you know so here we have this guy who's lived through like you know a thousand years of earth history and you know hid all these pieces of this very very dangerous staff to kind of leave that behind and now it's all of course coming up again i really thought that was cool yeah and i really enjoy how delightfully ordinary he is for an asgardian yes Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I went to war because my job sucked and I mm-hmm. stayed because war sucked. Right. You know, that's very understandable. That's incredibly human, you know. Right. It's a very cool story. And it's not a hero's story. You know, it's just this guy who just made this choice, you know, but it makes sense. And it's kind of cool. And it, it, it gives this sort of interesting kind of filling out of of all like we get these big huge massive stories in these movies but then you get kind of this side thing that happens like you know what would happen to the warriors who came here like that kind of thing i think is really interesting i liked it a lot yeah i i yes i really enjoyed it conceptually and mm-hmm. um it makes sense for it to come on the heels of dark world mm-hmm. i almost wish they hadn't bothered with the part at the beginning where they were there cleaning up yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because because it's fresh on our minds. Right. Like we right. came to this episode from watching Dark World in real time. Mm-hmm. 
So let's do an Asgardian story. But I sort of just, I'm just going to say to you, I didn't exactly buy that this group of highly trained people were there doing trash pickup. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So it almost would have been better if they were on their way to do trash pickup and everybody's whining about it. And then, oh, good news. <laughs> right. We mm-hmm. get to go do important work that also happens to have Asgardian stuff in it. You know. Right. Exactly. This I, mean, is I me think nitpicking. they wanted to. Yeah. I think they wanted to make that connection, you know, because in in the early seasons of um, of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., more than the later ones, uh, the the. Events that happen in the movies really affect what's going on in, you know, in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. world, Mm -hmm. you know, and so we'll have that kind of crossover back and forth. Um, And I think it's kind of neat. It was really it was a fun little story. But yeah, I wasn't that interested. And we have that opening with, you know, Simmons talking about the mythology and, you know, people believe there were gods and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then it moves right into them, you know, doing the cleanup at the university. Um, But it's really this staff, you know, the three parts of the staff that make people you know crazy with power and anger and all of that um that uh, that i thought that was was kind of interesting but also you know we opened with these two people just out in the middle of a forest who happened to find the piece so for like a thousand years this information was hidden in these texts but these guys are just able to find one boom 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 one and the other immediately and and that seems a little bit i don't know a little bit weird but I, but i'm okay you know like fine whatever <laughs> To be fair, Mm -hmm. there actually has been in a relatively short amount of time, like the last 15, 20, 25 years, Mm -hmm. a resurgence in interest in like Norse paganism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and a group of real world people who are kind of trying to reclaim it and adapt it into a, if not religion, definitely a philosophy that Mm -hmm. they can apply, you know, like, like, um, people from that part of the world are trying to reclaim that part of their heritage and make it you know, something they can live by or live with uh, to bring their ancestors into their present day. And so it's it's not wildly outside of the possibility that that resurgence has led to a lot of new scholarship or a lot of new armchair scholars like what these people clearly are, you know. Right. Well, I mean, but they were referred to as a Norse pagan hate group. Which to me sounds incompatible, right? (laughs) Well, okay. I found that really interesting because if you go look at these people who are, again, like trying to kind of reclaim this and bring it into the present, they aren't violent. Like they are very specifically like trying to apply this to their lives in Mm -hmm. respect nature, respect our ancestors, you know. Right. Because that's what that's a pagan thing, right? You know, I mean, it's about being connected with nature. Yeah. If you look at Vikings. (laughs) Well, no. Vikings, yes. Vikings were, were you know, pretty pretty nasty. <laughs> pretty violent, yeah, right? Yeah. But I so, mean, no, I agree with you yeah. based on what they're kind of turning, you know, into or trying to do with those ancient stories. Right, because Scandinavian countries now, like, you know, are some of the most peaceful places on Earth, right? Right, right. So the idea yeah. of a Norse, you know, pagan hate group I just found that it, it sounded to me like fluffy kitten terrorist sect. Like it didn't seem to make sense to me. You know, I was like, wait a minute. I mean, and yeah, they do have yeah, this kind of area line brotherhood. of like they're taking that Viking stuff a little too seriously. You right. Know? Right. I mean, yeah. the Viking stuff is over it. Like they're over the Viking stuff. They did it, you know, and they calmed down and everything has been fairly peaceful, you know. So, yeah, the Norse pagan, 
kind of hate group thing. They did have that kind of sense of the Aryan Brotherhood about them, you know, like in the way that they were like physically carrying themselves and sort of the way they shaved their heads a little bit and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know. It just it it sounded a little bit weird. And they they throw it out there and they don't really address it again. It's just a hate group. They're just bad people, you know, getting a hold of these um of these these pieces of staff. What I think would have been interesting if they were essentially peaceful people, you know, who who held the staff and it changed them but i guess part of this i think part of this thing with the staff is that it it builds on anger that's already there i think Mm -hmm. is part of what they were trying to do and that's how we get this this stuff with ward right because we're talking about the well and this was an experience that he's remembering from his childhood after touching the staff and it's really difficult for him and he's you know we see this bit of his history this bit of his backstory where he had this abusive older brother um you know and he was kind of put in a position where he had to you know watch his younger brother basically drown in a well um, uh, or at least struggle in in the well to not drown um, because of his older brother. How did you feel about that backstory? I mean, we are we've been fairly, you know, open with our, you know, ward meh kind of feeling like, you know, (laughs) with our our lack of enthusiasm for ward. So um, what do you think about this? Does this make you feel any differently about ward? Do you like ward better after kind of getting a feel for his background? No, this isn't getting the job done. Yeah. yeah Your tortured so. past is like the most obvious, easy way to try and make somebody interesting. And it's just like, mm-hmm. okay, cool. You know, May's got one too, but I care about hers. Right, exactly. And also like the, they made him an asshole. So he, he becomes aggressive. He's mean to everybody. Like, I, I understand he's got this, you know, very difficult background, but making him a jerk with a guy who doesn't have a lot of, you know, kind of warm feelings built up for us, right? Yeah, that's doesn't not really a surprise. Have... Like, yeah. that's not an interesting turn. Mm-hmm. He's been kind of a dick for most of the episodes he's on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it didn't really work for me with uh, with Ward, like, getting that background from him. I was I was essentially just kind of bored through that whole thing. And I was just, I was wondering if you found it engaging, but apparently not. <laughs> no, not really. I mean, I get what they're doing and it's fine. Yeah. It's just, you know, I mentioned that that Ward should never condescend to May because May is what he grows up to be if he's lucky. Yeah, right. I mean, that's what happens in this episode. No, absolutely. Because May and it just makes me care about it. him less, you know? Right. May picks up the staff and she's kind of got that, you know, she's she can handle the staff because she always has that anger within her, you know? Um, and I thought that that was kind of interesting. Like, May is kick ass in this moment. Oh, totally. She's amazing. Yeah. She doesn't just use one part of the staff or two parts of the staff, she uses all three of them. Yes. And then puts it down. Yeah. It's amazing. She can she can completely handle herself, which I thought was really cool. You know, I mean, it was it showed her incredible strength. You know, it showed how yeah. tough she is, which I really like about May. Um, but then, of course, we have like at the end, right? May going yeah. into the hotel room and Ward following her in. Great. Yeah. So I don't know. That was... That was anti-clip. I didn't really care. I mean, I didn't hate it, but I didn't really care like that right. they were they had a connection or whatever. Um, you know, so I mean, that was that was kind of an okay moment, but it wasn't really that great. I did like Ward in the beginning actually. In the beginning of the episode when he is coaching Simmons through climbing the tree and getting the information. Yes. 
I thought that, that was, was actually so pretty good. Cool. Yeah. You know, and he mean, says, I'll catch you if you fall. I thought that was nice. That, so since you kind of have two big guys in this mm-hmm. five-man band, mm-hmm. and May, at this stage, cannot be the person who actually relates to other humans. Right. Mm-hmm. Having him sort of become the big brother and protector of the group would give him a differentiation that would actually make him interesting, except we did it this episode, I feel, only so that his turn to being more of a jerk had any impact at all. Right. Yeah. yeah and, you know, not... it's It's a little weird. And we have a very light note of Fitz watching Simmons as she watches Ward, right? You know, mm-hmm. that he's just kind of keeping, like, it's not something that's really textually there, but you can see it in Ian DeCasker's performance that he's keeping an eye on this, you know, while Ward is walking her through this whole thing. And I like that Simmons is like, I understand that you're using my enthusiasm for science to get me to do this, but it's working, so I don't care, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> So Simmons is being manipulated. She knows it. She doesn't care because it's working. It's getting her to do the job, you know, but she's so excited. And that's one of the things I absolutely love about both Fitz and Simmons is that no matter what the circumstance, their, you know, primary function, their primary value for everything is the science and the science will always get them excited. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, it's a thing that I love about both of them. And it's a great character beat, I think for her in that moment. Um, So I really like that. Um, I, I liked the moment with May. We had this early on in the episode two where um she gets kind of like you see her you know listen i think it was sky who was talking about flying an alien ship you know and you see her eyes light up she doesn't say anything you know and then there's the moment where they're saying thor is dreamy and then she calls thor dreamy which i think is kind of i don't know it felt a little weird for me i like I think it worked for me because she's kind of smirking her way through it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like, she's serious because Mm -hmm. Thor is dreamy. But also, she's kind of gigging Coulson in that moment. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, she's teasing, but also seriously and maybe trying to reach out to Skye, which is really interesting considering the next episode. But we'll deal with that in a minute. Yeah, no, we absolutely (laughs) will. We absolutely will. Um, So I like Peter McNichol. You know, and yes. this is some may remember is John Cage from Ally McBeal. He will always be John Cage to me. Um, because that's, that's when I first became familiar with him. Um, playing this this Asgardian warrior and this, you know, um, kind of, uh, you know, creepy um, professor where yeah. he's talking to the we open with him talking to the graduate student. You know, and telling her, you know, what's wrong with her paper and everything, but we're still going out for dinner tonight. And then he has this line that he says to Simmons. He says, academically minded and pretty as a peach. And I'm just like, ugh, you know, he's really kind of gross, and yet I still like him. <laughs> I don't know if it's Peter I think McNichol. That's the point. I mm-hmm. hope that's the point, because otherwise yeah. these two bits of being a creeper don't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, no, because he's just like, he's, he's, an interesting, complicated character. And of course, when he's talking yeah. about how the history got out there, it was because of a woman, you know, in the in the 16th century. So, um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I kind of like him, despite the fact that he's, he's kind of abhorrent, you know. It's, <laughs> it's more sort of the going to dinner with his student than yeah. the, I mean, the stuff with Simmons isn't great, but I'm just like, oh my God, you're unethical too? I don't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's a, but he's I a do creeper. still like him. <laughs> I can't help it. I do too. And I mean, it's just, and I think part of that is there's this richness of the story of his backstory of, you know, what's going on here. Like, I like all of it. We have that moment, of course, where he's stabbed with the, um, <laughs> with the staff. 
And then, you know, Coulson just puts his hand right in the cavity, in the chest cavity, finds his heart, keeps it beating. It's just such a bizarre. Did you find that whole thing bizarre? Yeah, I I think this is kind of what happens when your story yeah. starts to center too hard on one or two people in your five man band. And you're trying to find something for the others to do. You've got to find yeah. something else for them to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, we don't have a lot of uh, real estate to explain anything. So uh, uh, hand in the chest? Hand in the chest, sure. But you yeah. know, it's exactly the kind of thing that killed James Garfield. Had a doctor just <laughs> digging in there looking for the bullet with his bare hands. Like, I know this guy's Asgardian, but still. <laughs> yeah, it's, yes, it was a weird choice, mm-hmm. but. I really, I bet that most people who were watching it in the moment were just like, yeah, no, it seems legit because then sure. we go right back to the fight. <laughs> right. Because there's not a, there's nothing much happening there, but he lives through it. And so that's good. Um, so I don't know. I liked, I liked the well overall. It's not my favorite episode. There are some things like I don't really care for the ward stuff, you know, but I, I do like this kind of broader world building. I liked Peter McNichol. Um, and I thought that that was kind of fun. So, so what do you think about the well overall? I'm I'm in the same boat. I, mm-hmm. I really liked it conceptually, like we're digging into this wider MCU stuff without being beholden to it. Um, the Ward stuff isn't great, but I'm already ignoring Ward, so that was no right. problem. <laughs> yeah, it, but overall, it's good. Like, um, it's not my favorite so far because I think that's probably I Spy, just because it's so spy-fi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's it's probably second. I really like it just because of that tapping into the wider tapestry. Yeah, it's good. Okay, so now I kind of want to take your temperature just a little bit overall. Like, you know, we've gone through, now we've gone through the first, like, eight episodes, right? Um, Are you still feeling, you know, this kind of, like, tepid response to S.H.I.E.L.D.? Or are you getting more into it at this point? I'm just going to be completely honest. If I weren't, I don't hate it. I do not hate it. But if I weren't watching it for this podcast... I'd probably just call it a bad job and give up. <laughs> okay, interesting. I'm going to keep taking your temperature as we move through because I want to see where the tipping point is should we ever reach that. I got <laughs> high hopes, but it's not this like far. an endless slog of me dragging you through Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which I That's love. why I'm emphasizing I don't hate it. Right, right. It's not like this is the worst possible thing ever. It's just like... I would rather be doing something else than watching this show. Sure. I am going, if I weren't taking notes during the show, mm-hmm. I would be playing Sailor Moon Drops during the show. Right. And, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, that's how we would get to it. So I'm glad I have notes. But All yeah, right. we're not, we're not there yet. Okay, fair enough. Let's move into episode nine, Repairs. Now, this is the one where we have the woman who appears to have telekinetic ability, um, and the team goes to check out what's going on, and then, of course, immediately kidnap her, because that's what we do with powered people, (laughs) y'all. Hey, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is the good guys. Yes, they are the good guys, the good kidnappers. So um... (laughs) We're taking her to the happy Gitmo. Exactly. For her own protection, yes. Um, All right, so one of the things, now this is the one, we have this sort of ghost story, right? And we have a couple of, you know, religious characters who are, you know, from the heartland, right? Of course. Of course, because that's the only place where God exists. Yes, we we grow things and we Mm -hmm. apparently have faith here in the Midwest. Strong, strong faith. So 
we don't see a lot of religion in the MCU or many religious stories. We have this sense of, you know, gods, but that's like mythological. That's like, you know, Thor and, you know, King Arthur and, you know, Hercules and stuff like that. Aliens. Right. More than that. More than the idea of, of a god, like a monotheistic, traditionally conceptualized god figure. Right. We don't really deal with that. And this is the thing. And, um, this is actually something which Joss Whedon, who is, of course, a, a showrunner and his brother, Jed Whedon, is a, is a much more, you know, into the day to day showrunner on this on this show. Um, Joss Whedon has a, a history um, going back to Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, uh, which is the spinoff of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where he will kind of co-opt religious um, iconography. You know, like when we've got the vampires, we've got the crosses, we'll burn them, the holy water will burn them. Um, you know, we we pull in these these kind of things from religion but without really acknowledging the the broader context for that it's a very secularized like this is just this is just a cross it doesn't mean anything it just happens to to hurt them but we don't talk about it coming from some sort of you know religious power right you know some mm-hmm. sort of power of faith that that gives that symbol that power they never talk about it very very rarely does Joss Whedon actually address real religious faith and meaning he just sort of co-ops the the symbols right um so here you know we have these characters who are very religious you know who who believe very strongly in god uh we have a a somewhat religious theological discussion you know between hannah and sky uh in the middle of the episode um so we do kind of address some of this stuff but it feels and again like you know religion is not my background i mean i i come from a long line of preachers but i myself have never really been terribly religious um and i i wasn't raised in like you know very strong sense of religion so so for me it's kind of for me to see it you know kind of there and secularize it doesn't really make that much of an impression on me but I I think that people of faith might have a different response to this and I'm wondering what your response is I kind of have two Mm -hmm. I mean one of them is from the kind of superhero angle and then one is more from that you know Mm -hmm. being a person of faith seeing people of faith portrayed yes Mm -hmm. so the easier one of those is the superhero one yeah right (laughs) um you, you mentioned we don't see a lot of religion or religious stuff in the stories. And this is largely the case in superhero comics also. Uh-huh. Uh, very rarely do you get anyone that is actually devout. Mm-hmm. And when they are, it's usually for a pretty specific reason. Uh, right. This is dipping into the X-Men territory, but Nightcrawler is devoutly Catholic. Okay. Uh-huh. And his... Catholicism would often bring him into sort of ideological conflict with Wolverine as they were becoming best friends. Mm-hmm. And so that would be really interesting, right? Um, you would also see that kind of play out in other ways when Dracula shows up in an X-Men comic and uh-huh. Wolverine makes a cross with his claws and it doesn't work because it has to be backed by religious faith. Okay. Uh-huh. So Kitty Pride, who is devoutly Jewish, her Star of David actually works on Dracula Nightcrawler's cross works on Dracula. Wolverine's cross does not work on Dracula. So it's all charged by faith. It's yes. The the symbol only has the power that the person brings to it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm fine with this. I think that's kind of the nature of superhero stuff, right? Like in superhero stories, the heroes are our moral compasses. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not what would Jesus do? It's what would Captain America do or what would Superman do? 
Right. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, not to go down this rabbit trail, is why Man of Steel churns my stomach, right? Like, I can't Mm -hmm. deal with it. Mm -hmm. But to place something else at a higher moral standing than the superheroes, it kind of starts to break down, like, the metaphorical conceit, right? Sure, right. And Mm -hmm. the place where this is tricky is when we want these kind of more realistic world outside our window stories, but we Mm -hmm. also have to deal with the genre that we're in, and that's kind of where we get into this area here Mm -hmm. with this show. Yeah. So so as a person of faith, it doesn't really offend me or affect me mm-hmm. to see this character dealing with her faith on screen. Like yeah. and and to be honest, as I consider myself a refugee from American evangelicalism that still managed to retain his faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Watching this woman assume that the God of wrath that has probably been preached to her most of her life. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, obviously I'm being punished. Right. You know? mm-hmm. um, I mean, it makes me it sort of makes me angry on her behalf that yeah. this is the this is the God that she's been presented with. Yeah. Um, you know, Sky comes in with a very different story that I think is uh, still problematic, but more representative, you mm-hmm. know, Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. So it's I maybe my answer would be different if I were still ensconced in evangelicalism. But as I'm standing there, I'm like, well, of course, these are the assumptions she made, right? <laughs> uh, with what she's probably been taught based on mm-hmm. you know the sketches of world building that we get, right? Um, and honestly, be- maybe it's because superhero stuff. It doesn't bother me as much that we kind of touch on religion and then run away. It mm-hmm. bothers me more on Buffy and Angel, honestly, because those symbols are only part of vampire legend because of their religious significance. Exactly. So it feels really, I I don't know, somewhere between disingenuous and lazy to grab them and then not deal with Is it not? It's cultural appropriation, right? We're taking the symbols, but we're not addressing where they come from or their greater context or the people who believe in them. I mean, it is cultural appropriation, right? So I think I think we would not classify it as appropriation mostly because that assumes that the power differential leans the other way. Yeah, fair enough. So mm-hmm. no, that's an interesting point and I'm kind of thinking my way through it. So I think it's not cultural appropriation, but I think that that would actually be a really useful tool for explaining cultural appropriation to no, yeah, absolutely. Christians. Like but it's, you know right. this thing Mm-hmm. Except every you're doing it all the time, and you're the ones in charge. You know, I'm well, saying you're the I mean, ones. Like I'm not. Christmas part of that is model. cultural appropriation. I yeah. mean, you know, these are all pagan holidays that we have all of our you know Christian holidays yeah. based on. So I mean, there's there's a whole big long history of that. Um, but it is it is some kind of it's like a cousin to cultural appropriation. It's it's related yes, yes. to that in a way because yes. we're taking we're taking the aesthetic of it. But we're not talking about the greater meaning behind it. And I like when you're talking about superheroes, like that the that the approach within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or I'm sorry, the Marvel Comic Universe, right, was to um, to that you have to charge that they, they don't they lose their power, they don't have power in and of themselves. They are charged, empowered by faith, right? So you yeah. have to the faith is the thing that matters. And I think that those are really interesting questions to ask. What what feels weird to me here is that. It feels like we don't spend a moment like thinking that there's anything like it feels an extremely atheistic 
perspective from which mm-hmm. to tell a story about people of faith. Um, it's it's sort of dismissed out of hand, you know, that that there there can't be a higher being, there can't be, you know, all of this stuff is is silly and and it just it isn't real, you know. Um, we have May say people believe what they need to believe to justify their actions, right? Which a is very kind of cynical take, but one that makes sense to me from May. Yeah, no, I understand it from May, but I mean, like, it just seems like we have, I mean, Sky comes closest, right? She's like, I don't really believe in that stuff, you know, but one of the sisters at the orphanage told me God is love, and that's how it's always made sense to me, you know, and this this wrathful idea of a God that is punishing you, and, you know, I think may not be the thing, you know, um, and so I think that we kind of dance near this kind of interesting philosophical space but it's not really a space that that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. specifically really would spend that much time in you know they don't yeah. really they they pose some philosophical questions like why are our good guys going around kidnapping people you know <laughs> but they don't they're not interested in asking the questions or answering them you know they just sort of accidentally pose the questions and then wander about their business you know um, so I found the the presence of religion here um and and also uh, you know a ghost right which gives us a sense of is there an afterlife i yeah, mean are we talking about yeah. right are we talking about there being an afterlife what is the what is the philosophy of this world like what do we believe in you know and i mean of course fitz and simmons would say there's always a scientific explanation for things there's just some things we can't explain yet you know um but but we also had, you know, last time in right that moment with Agent Coulson where he's talking to Tony Diaz about to die, right? Um, and he says, "Don't be afraid. He died, and it was beautiful, right?" So yeah. that feels to me like a spiritual message, does it not? That is really complicated because I think you and I disagree about uh-huh. what Coulson is discussing there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think you're. A little more prone to chalk that up to the time that he was actually dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if we jump ahead a little bit, oh, we'll talk so much more about this here in a minute. But yeah, they we know textually soon. Yes. That the memories of his dying in pain are kind of papered over to try and retain a version right. of Agent Coulson that people would at least partially recognize. Mm hmm. And I mean, my first take before you and I talked about this was that those are his implanted memories. Right. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not real at all. Like that's right. I don't know and what that's... he's remembering, but they gave that to him to try and maintain his sanity. Right. Well, you know, and fair enough. I mean, maybe they did. You know, I mean, they 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 gave him memories of Tahiti to cover up the resurrection process. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. But the time that he was dead and as we learned, you know, a little bit later, he was dead for days. Right. Yeah. Um, the time that he was dead, if he has a memory of of what that was or what that was like. You know, and he says it was beautiful. And actually, you know, over in Buffy, not to spoil Buffy for anybody, but we have a similar situation with a character who was dead for a period of time and comes back and says she believes she was in heaven. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. so it feels like we are and we're saying something about there being life after death because we have Tobias. Right. Who died. He's dead. Right. But he's struggling between these dimensions. And one of them is pulling him in. I don't think he is dead. 
Okay, so well, I mean, and we have like the ever wonderful like a particle accelerator. Is that not what gave the Flash his powers? A particle accelerator that exploded, right? Uh oh, on the show, yeah, kinda. on the show, yeah. Okay, <laughs> right. So I mean, the particle accelerator exploding kind of gives you sort of a a scientific backdoor to explain why we have this guy who's sort of trapped between dimensions. You know? Oh, I have more. Okay. Because I think it happened around, not directly on, but around the convergence from the dark world. Okay. All right. Because I kind of wondered if the hell world that he was trapped in was actually Svartalfheim. Oh. I mean, it looks similar to me. Interesting. God, that hadn't even occurred to me. But yeah, that's that's an interesting idea. I mean, that's what I think. I think the particle accelerator and the either just before or just after convergence time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. made this thing happen that would not normally happen where he is physically caught between two worlds. Between two worlds. Yeah. Right. Like right. physically caught between these two physical worlds that are separated by light years. Yeah. But he's pulling he's pulling to Earth because of Hannah. Right, because he's like in love with her or whatever. But here's the thing that doesn't make sense to me, right? He is trying to protect her ostensibly, right? That's his claim. Yes. But if he's trying to keep her safe, why is he exploding things around her, uh, you know, hurting people around her, making everybody turn against her a million times worse than they would have otherwise? And then when she's on a plane, taking the plane down, like this guy seems like a real bad boyfriend. I believe you've nailed it right there. <laughs> I, I, In your last sentence, I believe you explained the problem. Oh, God. He I mean, is it's crazy. Just a picture of every, you know, possessive boyfriend. And in this case, particularly bad possessive boyfriend because they weren't actually in a relationship. They weren't. And he put people in danger by messing things up just to get her attention because he couldn't get the stones together to just like ask her out on a date, you know, and, and, and face that possible rejection, right? Yeah. I mean, it seems like an entitlement thing to me. I don't know. Maybe well, which I'm also explains something. the violent reaction to whatever danger she's in. Yes. I mean, this mm-hmm. is clearly not a person for whom talking through his problems is the was thing, the way that he right? handled them. You right? know, uh, yeah, he's going to it's... literally sabotage a nuclear device yeah. in order to get this girl to come down and talk to him for a couple minutes Yeah, on the reg. Yeah. Not that's great. <laughs> it's not romantic. It's highly manipulative. It's kind of gross. So Tobias, you know, as a character doesn't make sense because nothing he's doing really makes sense. You know, he's not protecting her. He's making her life actively worse, you know? So him getting pulled into hell or whatever this dimension is, Svartalheim, you know, uh, doesn't really bother me much. I'm, I'm pretty glad to see him go. Um, we have <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. He's, he's good he's riddance bad. Tobias. <laughs> exactly. And we have this moment with May, you know, where she is telling him, let the girl go. Let the girl go, right? Which is obviously at the end. We we see that that those are the words that Coulson said to her. We get a little bit more of her history here. Mm-hmm. Um, we get the background on why she's called the cavalry, you know, um, which obviously she doesn't care for. Um, so I don't know. I find um, all of this story to feel like it's kind of like two pieces of sandpaper, sort of grating against itself. Yes, it's a mess. It really yeah. is. Yeah. It, they they 
they bring up more questions that they're not prepared to put down. Mm-hmm. Um, Tobias, his motivations make sense, but then his actions don't really make sense. Yeah. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but there are at least two tones going on in this show that don't go yeah. together. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we've got the pranking, right? Which seems, which is so silly. And that's okay. We have silly moments in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Sure. It's a funny show. But, you know, up next to this the the weight of of bringing all of this religious stuff in here and the thing is is that they could have told this story without the religion they didn't need that you know except i guess they wanted this guy to think he was being pulled into hell but anybody might think that if they died and they're you know being pulled into another dimension they might you know define it within those terms who the hell knows you know and um and we have you know may kind of dealing with this this very dark past that she has you know which is also really heavily weighted Mm -hmm. and then we go into you know fitz and simmons you know pulling pranks on sky and one of them being that they tell her a ridiculous story about may's history which by the way everybody knows is a very sensitive thing for may she's already said don't call me the cavalry you shouldn't be talking about it it's not your business it obviously upsets a member of your team that's her history to talk about when and if she decides she wants to talk about it and yet as part of this you know quote-unquote pranking we're telling ridiculous stories about that history and that feels it feels out of step well good news in this episode Mm -hmm. sky is supposed to be the heart in our five-man band so fitz and Mm -hmm. simmons are free to be jerks are free to be jerks absolutely but i mean you know ward steps in on it too and tells her some ridiculous story and then colson tells her the truth about it but also it's not colson's truth to tell this is may's yes, experience it's weird and she obviously is sensitive about it it obviously was a big trauma for her when she was talking to colson about him you know getting shivved through the heart by an Asgardian staff, right? When she was talking to him about the trauma and how trauma changes you and all that kind of stuff. Like this is an equivalent, equivalently difficult experience for her. So for the entire team to take that so lightly when it's been textually stated that this is not something we talk about because it's not our business. This is May's thing. And when, and if she wants to talk about it, she'll talk about it. You know, um, that felt disrespectful of May. And I, I understand that, you know, we wanted to get this story across, but there had to be a better way. I just think this is one of those episodes in a 22 episode season where nobody thought as hard about it as they should have. Right. I mean, yeah, it's fine. I, mean, I think that they could have. Uh-huh. You know, it's okay. Mm-hmm. But it could have been something more interesting or more in-depth or they could have lightened the whole thing up so that we weren't expecting it to be more in-depth this feels like one of those episodes in a 22 episode season where nobody thought about it as hard as they should have yeah absolutely it could have been lightened up entirely so we weren't expecting more serious things or we could have actually taken some of this prank nonsense and dealt with the philosophical or theological questions yes and instead Mm -hmm. we get this weird middle space yeah, because they don't, you know, a lot of times you'll have different stories, you'll have an A story and a B story happening within a TV episode, sure. but but they will reflect on each other, they will build each other, you know, um, but this, it's so atonal, you know, it, there's such a, a, a cognitive dissonance between where we are in the one story and where we are in the other story, 
um, that it feels weird. And then we end on this, you know, coda where, you know, Fitz has uh, shaving cream on his face, you know, or whatever. And it's supposedly May who played the prank. And there's a moment where Coulson says, you know, May used to play pranks and yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, I don't believe. I don't believe that May played pranks. Like, even when she was 14, I don't think that May did pranks. She just doesn't seem in her character. Trauma does change you. I will, you know, attest to that. Absolutely. But I don't think it changes you that much. I really like the idea of her being a fearless daredevil. And when she Mm -hmm. has a situation where that doesn't work out and it Mm -hmm. fundamentally changes the way that she approaches the world. And now she is equally fearless, but the opposite of a daredevil. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I'm here for that. I like that. So I'm going to choose to believe Coulson's appraisal of pre-Cavalry May. Well, Daredevil, I, like I see. I see risk taker. I see, uh, you know, like enthusiasm and all that kind of stuff. I don't see pranks. And it's possible because I hate pranks. I think they're stupid. They annoy <laughs> the hell out of me. Um, and so that kind of stuff, I always, I have always hated it. And it just doesn't seem like May to me. But you know what? I mean, it's, it's a piddly little point. I will definitely let it go. <laughs> May's part of this episode is probably the best part of this episode. Yes. Honestly. Mm-hmm. Like she sees so. that sky being compassionate to this girl is working better than her approach. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, um, she gets to really connect her trauma with somebody else's Mm -hmm. trauma and help that person. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, and then in the end, we see a lightning of her, even if nobody else knows. Mm -hmm. I, if this episode were just May's bits, it would be a lot better, but the whole package is not great. So one more thing before we move on. Okay. Involving Mm -hmm. Fitz and Simmons. Yes. Since they are already not wearing a good look in this episode. I'm just going to lay this out here. Uh-huh. Skeptics in superhero universes are idiots. Okay. Yes. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. You live in a universe of... We, Lonnie, you and I live <laughs> in a universe of infinite possibility. Right. Okay. They live in a world of infinite possibility invented by people who live in a world of infinite possibility and think there should be more. Okay? Right. Mm-hmm. You saying... Oh, that just doesn't exist is begging for that universe to prove you wrong over and over again. You say there's no such things as demons and ghosts. A demon is literally going to join your team in a later season. Spoiler warning. <laughs> you two look like idiots and need right. to be more. And and just so you know, there is a different approach. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you mentioned the Flash TV show, which I largely really enjoy. Yes. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I like it is after a few of these supervillains and crazy things happen, the Mm -hmm. scientists on the show stop saying this is impossible and start going, oh, well, obviously that's what happened. Right. Oh, we're had it happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll explain it later. Right. But we're not assuming it didn't happen because we have now seen too many impossible things to do that. And Fitz and Simmons, I know it's early. It's episode Mm -hmm. eight. Get your shit together. Right. I, I can tell you that the the more common approach for Fitz and Simmons is we may not know what the scientific explanation is, but there is a scientific explanation. So they don't tend to rule things out. They just hardly believe that there is science behind it. It's just that maybe we don't understand that science yet. And I think that that's a fair enough, you know, but to say that something doesn't exist in this world where crazy things exist all over the place does feel, you know, a little beneath them. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, you've had one set of gods, one pantheon turn out to be aliens. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and assume that's most of them then. That makes more sense than no, 
gods exist exactly exactly Um, or that you know that we're seeing it from a different perspective that you're understanding it as a mystical thing and i'm understanding it as a scientific thing but the thing itself can still exist you know yeah and this is going to continue into the next couple episodes honestly Mm -hmm. because they're going to insist that a clairvoyant cannot exist well right that's that's uh phil colson who says that which i find to be but they are 100% behind yeah. it. Like, yeah. they have been saying since um, there was a few episodes ago when they had the pyrokinetic. And they yeah. talked about, well, we've never had one, so there can't be one. So it Those two exist. sentences do not make sense together, science nerds. Exactly. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. <laughs> See, we've even got a saying for it, you guys. There anyway, you go. I just yes. wanted to get that out there because this is a thing that crops up every now and then in mm-hmm. superhero comics, too. Yeah. And I'm always like... I'll tell you, the most famous example of this is a man named Mr. Terrific on the Justice Society of America, and he's Mm -hmm. an atheist and a skeptic. And I'm like, listen, I get it, guy. But you are on a team with God's literal angel of vengeance. Yes. (laughs) What are you disbelieving exactly? You know? Right. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, there's a certain point where Scully's seen too much. She cannot be the skeptic (laughs) anymore, you know? Yes. And yeah, and after a while, you've got to just kind of address that. So I think it does get better, but I definitely, definitely get that out. Yes, no. And cruise on to the bridge. You're completely right. Yes, the bridge. All right. So we are getting the return of Centipede with this. We're getting the return of Mike Peterson, who I love. It's always fun to see him. We're getting Raina coming back. And we're seeing kind of this this connection thread. This is where, you know, I, I started to see that they were doing something big with the whole season, that it wasn't just each episode was a one-off. That right, there are yeah. things, there are lines coming in that are kind of converging now and connecting. We're connecting the Centipede program to Akila Amador's Eye from iSpy. Yeah. We're pulling all of this stuff together and um, and I think it's pretty good. I actually really like this episode. What did you think about it? Yes, this one and the next one both I yeah. liked a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a big chunk of that is because they are starting to tie all these things together in a way that is really interesting. You know, yeah. like mm-hmm. that is legitimately building towards a thing that justifies this team and our interest. Mm-hmm. So, yes. And you can see that even with Mike Peterson coming back, like our very first guy is back and he's yep. more like capable and involved, you know. Oh, God, and, I yeah, love yeah, Mike I, Peterson. I like this a lot. Yeah. No, Mike Peterson, bringing Mike Peterson back. And here we have, you know, this actor, J. August Richards, who, you know, also um, is part of the Whedonverse. You may have all the Marvel history, but I will give you all the Whedon history. All my (laughs) Easter eggs are Whedon Easter eggs. So that's what I'm saying. Like, I I will come at you with all that stuff. But Mike Peterson, I love this character. I love his struggle with his own heroism. You can kind of feel the weight of that on him at at all times. Mm -hmm. he's so earnest he's trying so hard he just wants to be a better person he says first time around I wasn't who I wanted to be having all this it's a privilege you know he's trying to be better he wants to be better he hasn't seen his son because the last time his son saw him he was a monster he's struggling with all of this and I absolutely love it it is so incredibly crunchy for me and when Coulson comes to him and says we need you to suit up We want to pull you into the team. Like, yes, this is how you handle a powered person. 
You Mm -hmm. give them the option of coming in and helping you if that is what they want to do. And then if they don't, you leave them alone until they do something bad instead of (laughs) presuming that they're going to do something bad and watching over them. So I like the way that they're dealing with Mike in this. They're giving him an opportunity to do something that he wants to do. You know, Coulson has that discussion with him about his son. And then, of course, in the end, he is forced in order to save his son. And I mean, this is one of the best things you can ever do. Whenever you want to really build a character and let us know who somebody is, give them an impossible choice, you know? Mm-hmm. And here he has his son. He has to betray everything. Like he just wanted to be a hero for his son. And then in order to save his son, he has to betray the good guys, you know, and make that choice. Everything with Mike Peterson in this episode, I absolutely loved. I thought it was so wonderful. And then, of course, he runs into the explosion at the end, you know, to try to save Coulson, which is an incredibly heroic thing to do. And that's the last thing his son sees, you know, is his father dying, but dying a hero, you know, or trying to be a hero. And I think that that is so incredibly crunchy and wonderful. What did you think of, of Mike Peterson? Now that I've gone on about how much I absolutely no. love it. If you, if you hate it, it's okay. <laughs> no, good Lord. No. Are you kidding me? I mean, we have a team of villains on the rise as far yeah. as I'm concerned with the mm-hmm. agents of shield. <laughs> right. And here we have an actual heroic person show up. Yeah. I don't think to tie bits of what we just discussed in the well to mm-hmm. things that we've talked about with Tony Stark. Yeah. Our reintroduction to Mike Peterson is him asking if he beat Captain America's time. Yes. Now, Mm -hmm. that is a physical thing he's talking about, Mm -hmm. but no, it isn't. Nope. (laughs) Captain America is the moral compass for this universe. Yes. The true north of what you ought to be doing is Captain America. Mm -hmm. Here we have textually a person who realizes that more or less yeah you know mm-hmm. and not only do i love that he's put in an impossible position but i love that he makes the most heroic decision at every step of that way yeah it doesn't work out mm-hmm. because it's an impossible decision that's not right. how impossible decisions work but each time he sacrificed colson for my son it's not even a choice i'll feel bad right. about it but it's not even a choice but right when i'm in the moment kid. will i do something to try and turn it back around in my favor yes, yes okay that didn't work does. either mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, you know. but he tries. I mean, the thing is, yes. he has his son in his arms. He can just run. And he looks at Coulson, and he's so sorry. And I love, this is, I mean, I love Coulson. I know not everybody is, like, as in love with Phil Coulson as I am, and I get it. But when he says, you had no other choice. Yes. Like, and he gives Mike that forgiveness, that understanding, you're still a hero, even though he's the one who's been betrayed. Coulson is all in. If this is what saves your son, then I'm going willingly. It's done, you know? Yep. Um, and I love that in Coulson, you know, that he, in, in this moment where his life is threatened, where he, everything is like turning around on him, where he's been betrayed, right? His first thing is to protect Mike and to tell Mike that he's still a hero. You had no other choice and to forgive him. I love that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to see all the places that Mike goes on mm-hmm. this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with the jump ahead a little bit with the coda leaving him in what is yeah. clearly another long series of impossible choices. Right. Right. You know, I mean, and that's that's really interesting, too, when we get to that coda with Mike, where he discovers, you know, that his leg is missing and everything. And, and what we've been talking about all, you know, all season so far is the essentially transformative experience of trauma. 
that trauma changes who you are. We've seen it in Coulson. We've seen it in May. And then we're going to see that again in Mike and what that does to him. Um, He's so interesting and I love him. And another character I love is Raina, girl in the flower dress, right? I mean, I love her. She's we've given her a name. She's an active sub antagonist with, you know, she's in the primary position now along with Poe. Right. You know who we're going to see a little bit more of as we move through these stories. Um, But she's kind of the the big active antagonist here, you know, but there's the clairvoyant in the background and she's so enthusiastic about the clairvoyant. You see this look in her eyes when she's talking to Poe about it. She just wants to get closer to the clairvoyant. And that brings in a real interesting vulnerability for her right because vulnerability shows up in fear identity love and shame right and she has a love and a passion for whatever it is that she's doing you know and it is all about getting closer to the clairvoyant about understanding that kind of power you know we don't know specifically what it's about at this point but we do see that within her and i think it makes her so interesting and so textured and i absolutely love it yeah, I agree completely. I have loved her since the first moment she walked on screen. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. The big reveal when she turns out to not be somebody picking up. Right. Scorch. I can't mm-hmm. remember his real name. Scorch. Now. Yes. Um, and then it turns out she's she's playing him and then she's in charge. And then I didn't like her kind of second in command to Poe. But then she's like, OK, I'll yeah. work this. I can work yeah. this. And then, you know, she has this moment where she's so vulnerable and she just wants to get closer to the clairvoyant. And even in that moment, she's working Poe. She reaches yes. out, she touches his hand. She'll always play that kind of femme fatale angle if it works for her. And if it doesn't, she'll play another one. Like she is got so interesting and so good and evil. You know, she goes yeah. and she grabs this guy's kid. I mean, she's evil. She's bad. But God, she's textured and interesting. And I absolutely love it. And the thing is that when you have a bad guy who is doing something out of passion and enthusiasm, even when they're making the wrong choices, you know, like really destructive, evil choices, you know, um, it makes them so much more interesting. And I absolutely love that they're doing that with Reyna. Yeah, I agree. And and the fact that we don't, at least at this point, have any idea why she's so invested in the clairvoyant. Exactly. Is a really strong choice, I think. Um, I'm trying to remember under what circumstances you and I discussed that <laughs> the line is thin between really good antagonists and really good protagonists. Oh, it was in terms of Infinity War. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That it's, you know, with our heroes, with our protagonists, we know why they're invested in the thing. Yes, with our antagonists, it honestly is enough to know that they're invested. Yes. You know, yeah, and that's, right. we don't need to know their entire life story as long as you can artfully show us that they are invested in this villainy, whatever it is. And, and that that's, they believe that's in Raina. it. Yeah. yeah I don't want to yeah. know her any better. She's Absolutely. scary. Right. You know? She is completely <laughs> scary. And, and knowing more might make it less intriguing, like playing that line. You don't ever want to lie to your audience. You don't want to mislead your right. audience. But you can withhold. You can yes. hold back. And, and that's a very, very delicate dance, which I think is being beautifully done in this episode. Um, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I love the way that they build all of this escalation, you know, and they're really after Coulson, which I find so interesting, you know, that they're grabbing Coulson, that they want to find out information about Coulson, which, of course, we move into our next episode, which is basically, you know, a continuation of this one. It's essentially mm-hmm. a two-parter. Um, but before we move on to Magical Place, um, 
we have this moment in this episode, right, with that skepticism we were talking about before, where Coulson says they couldn't have a psychic. There are there are none on the index. They're a myth. And then Sky says so with Thor, right? So she's basically bringing up your exact point. <laughs> Sky's first winning of a rhetorical point. God yes, bless her. Yes, there you go. And I'm liking Sky more and more as we go. Is she growing on you yet? Listen, let's not look for miracles. We're not sure if this is a universe where God exists. All right. I'm going to get you on Sky. Eventually, eventually, I'm going to get you. I'm not going to lie. She is better. Yes. I mean, making her the heart and the empathy of the team in the previous episode and having her take that Mm -hmm. tactic, this one. Yeah. Now, we'll talk more about here in a minute, but honestly... I think the next episode is supposed to make me really care about Sky, and it backfires as far as okay. I'm concerned. Okay. So oh, interesting. I'm in a That's tough spot cool. with Sky, but I'm trying. <laughs> That's okay. No, I appreciate that you're trying. I do want to bring up a couple more things from this episode, though, before we we move on, because one of them really bugs me. That moment with Ward and Coulson in the car at the University of Ohio, right? He's yes. looking through, Ward is looking through the course listing, and for no reason that matters at all, we have him making fun of a feminism uh, a feminist psychology course right um, yeah. I guess so that it gets us into this discussion of of Colson and his cellist in Portland you know but this idea that they're kind of mocking a feminist course you know does not feel at all consistent with either of their characterizations because these two for whatever faults they might have always treat women as completely equal you know, I mean, it's just it's one of these things that it's it's how some men behave and it, that's fine. But it's not how these men behave. You know, Colson is highly paternal, you know, mm-hmm. let's protect people let's save them from themselves, that kind of thing. But that's equal opportunity paternalism. Like he <laughs> does it to men. He does it to women. It doesn't matter, you know. Um, and so I find that really weird, especially, you know, in contrast with earlier in this episode. Right. We have May you know, snapping at Ward and saying, I don't need your protection. Don't treat me Mm -hmm. like, you know, this woman that you're sleeping with that you have to protect. And of course, Ward came back with, no, that was strategic. And, you know, don't get too full of yourself and whatever, which I thought was right. Exactly. (laughs) But, um, but I mean, that's a really strong moment for May to be like, I am every bit your equal, you know, don't start treating me like I'm not, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I don't know. That landed like a lead balloon for me. Did did you pick up on that? Did that like strike you as odd? Now, I'm not blaming you because mm-hmm. I watched these way ahead of you. Right. But you got a text from me about this. Oh, God, did I? I it's I miss- fine. I'm just saying <laughs> it's awful and it's gross and I hate it. <laughs> and I hated it so much that I was like, what the actual hell is happening with these two? I mean... I, I agree with you 100% about Colson. I think uh-huh. I would actually accept this kind of thing from Ward. Maybe a little bit. Especially in this episode. He's a women who save his life every day. Like, Yes, but he does not understand how to deal with them emotionally. You can tell because watch him in May. Yeah, right. No, fair right? enough. And from I mean, Ward, I, mean, I can understand it. I still think that Ward, in this circumstance, like in this one particular angle, is better than that. Okay. I think he's I think he's more feminist than that. This is I mean, likely my do. Ward antipathy showing. It may through, be. So. It may be. I mean, because the thing is that Ward is a lot of things and a lot of things that I don't like. But I mean, sexist generally isn't one of them. Like he's yeah. generally he's pretty good. He's as Sky's S.O. You know, he doesn't treat her um, like they were less. flirting. 
yeah, no, he shouldn't be flirting with her. That's disgusting, but that's a different kind of disgusting. <laughs> that's not that's not like counter feminist. That's just creeper. You know, that's just like that has I to do with this. power differential. It would be creepy if a if a woman was doing that to a man with that power differential too. So like I don't find that as like a feminist thing so much as like a keep it in your pants thing, you know, like just calm down, buddy, you know. Um so I don't know, like that's I, I just that that bugged no, me. No, it's terrible. The mocking of the of the class really bugged me. And I don't no, remember you sending me worst. that text. That's so funny because if you sent me something I hadn't seen it yet, I probably forgot the context for it. But yeah, um, no, it's that scene yeah. is the worst. I was yeah. incensed in the moment, and I was just like, no, "What awful. is happening? Mm-hmm. Puzzles yeah. to be solved to absolute right. hell with you two guys." Exactly, and I don't think that's like either one of them. I don't think that's who Coulson is. You know, and this episode written by a woman. I don't know. I don't know what the hell's happening. I don't understand the world anymore. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, up um, is down, yeah. left is right. It's no I good. I know. I know. But, you know, but the nice thing is the ward does get shot. So at least we have that. Yeah. I was about to say, I really enjoy the fact that uh, ward is just becoming like the Baskin Robbins of terrible, where we just have 31 exactly. different flavors of 31 bad. 31 different flavors. I know. But it's just, you know, he gets shot. At least at least we get that, um, you know, and then we get this, uh, you know, this coda at the end with Coulson talking to Raina, whatever this is, whatever you think you're doing, I won't give you what you want. Right. Yeah. I love his strength, you know, but I also love the fact that she is in no way worried that he's not going to give her what she wants. You know, like she's yeah. not even she's not even intimidated at all. She knows she's going to get it from him because that's what she does. Well, it's not. Yes, it's absolutely what she does. Mm-hmm. It's also this is, again, the the blurred lines between spy fi and actual espionage fiction. Yes. But like one of the things from actual spying is, oh, no, you will break. Yeah. Like, like that will happen. I mean, mm-hmm. he can't say anything else in that moment. Saying that right, right then is part of him pushing off breaking for as long as he can. But it's also exactly. like, oh, no, it will happen. Yeah. You know, we'll but everybody find knows place. it'll happen. But you the know. thing is, and that's, I mean, this moves us into a magical place. So let's go ahead and like shift into the next space that we're in here. When we have that moment with Raina and Coulson later in a magical place, right? Where he has been resisting the torture and the torment and everything that Poe was doing. But Raina comes in and talks to him for like five minutes and he's in the machine. You know, like yeah, she, she comes knows at him from the emotional side. Yeah. She's, you know, she has that ability to, um, to manipulate you know, to work people, to get them to do things, even as they know that she's manipulating them. It's kind of brilliant. Yeah, yes. The The idea that Raina can come in with a completely different approach mm-hmm. and be almost instantly successful, but in a way that we completely believe. It does not undermine Coulson at all. Yeah, exactly. He's already been down this road himself. Yeah, And she's exactly. just saying... Listen, I know you're walking down this road. Let me give you the keys to the car, guy. Right. I mean, because um, her thing is always to find what is the thing that we both want. Like, yes. what is the angle that we both want this thing? How is he going to want to give me this information? Because he wants it for himself. And I mean, I got to say, you know, Raina would be amazing on Survivor. <laughs> If you can do that, I've seen a couple of people. I'm a big Survivor fan, by the way. I love Survivor. I watch every season. I think it's brilliant. Um, But there are a couple of people who've played Survivor who understood that and would just work people and people know they're being worked, but yet because they can find you want this thing. If you know what somebody wants, you can manipulate them in any way. You know, you just have to know what they want. I will give you an espionage term for this. Yes, what is it? She is cultivating an asset. (gasps) 
cultivating an asset. Is that what that is? I know yes, I've heard that, that phrase is. before. Wow. She's good. I mean, that's, good. that is proper espionaging. <laughs> that's very cool. See, I, I'm not familiar because I don't, I don't watch a lot of spy stuff. That's not kind of like my genre of choice. You know, if this was romantic comedy, I'd be throwing stuff at you. But <laughs> <laughs> You cultivate assets in a romantic comedy, too. You, you just probably you sure need can. to be the bad guy. Maybe, maybe you do. Maybe you do. <laughs> um, but I, I love the way that she works with that. I love the way that we move this shifting of power. Like we have Poe who's connected to the clairvoyant. She desperately wants to get to the clairvoyant, right? She's arguing with Poe. I would never use force to bend a man to my wishes, right? You know, which is a brilliant, you know, a brilliant way to express it. And it's always also to bend a man. Like she works mm-hmm. men, you don't really see her work women like that. I don't know. That's kind of interesting. Her um, working of a woman was basically to cut out the doctor. Okay, I'm really yeah. sorry about how this is going. Enjoy right. shield custody. Bye. Exactly. You know. But, you know, the thing is that she doesn't always use the femme fatale, but it seems to me like she just, I don't know if it's like her specialty that she knows how to manipulate a man specifically, but that's what we see from her. We saw it with uh, Chan Ho Yin. We it's saw true. it with, yeah, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, and now we're seeing it with Coulson. We see it with Poe when she's trying to work Poe, although she's much less successful working Poe. But she does kind of get him cut out. Like, I don't know how she does it with the clairvoyant, but, you know, he kills Poe and takes her and lets her do it, you know? Well, I, I mean, I think that that happens because her competency is outdoing Poe's competency. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think probably killing him is a little much, but also mm-hmm. maybe he's not a person. In fact, he seems like a person you can't sideline and expect to stay happy. Yeah. I mean, it seems like Poe, you either work with him or you kill him because he'll come after you. He's right. crazy. You know, I mean, he's absolutely crazy. But um, but I find it really interesting. And then here we have like in this episode, we have Victoria Hand, right? Coulson's gone. Victoria Hand is coming in, running the show. Right. And so we have Raina as kind of this opposite number to Victoria Hand. Right. Mm -hmm. Because Raina cares deeply and passionately and personally about what's going on. And then we have Victoria Hand, who's on the, you know, quote unquote, good side, who is cold. Like about everything, like yeah. you know, I don't even know why were we, why are we putting this much energy into a level eight operative? That's what she calls Colson. That's all Colson is to her, a level eight operative. We're putting in all of this, you know. Fury is trying to protect this, you know. Fury's involved, and she doesn't understand why they're doing it. Like she has no personal investment at all. And it's a reasonable question too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, she's she is right to ask that question from the perspective of a control. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like um, this is another espionage term, like the person at the office running your mm-hmm. op is your control. OK, mm-hmm. that's a good question for a control to have. Why are we expending yeah. all this time and resources on this guy? He's not worth that much. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, he's lost. He will yeah. break. It's time for us to compartmentalize and make changes, not go after him. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I really like that. I like how that is a reasonable question. And yet also on this airplane, mm-hmm. it's bad. It is. It's completely the wrong thing to say. <laughs> you know, and that's the thing is that for Colson and this team, like it's all about the team. You know, this team is a family and, and you know, rescuing each other is the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and. But you're right about that, showing the difference between 
the bad guy's passion. She's passionate mm-hmm. for all the wrong things. <laughs> right, right. But They're not she has things. skin in the game. Yes. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, Victoria is prepared to cut her losses. What are yeah. we doing? You know. Absolutely. Which I think is really fun. All right. So now you were saying that this episode does not win you over to Sky. All right. I kind of love Sky in this episode. <laughs> so, so it's still not working for you, huh? Okay, so they're trying very hard. Yes. I see it. I get what they're doing. But because I already don't like Sky, mm-hmm. and part of the reason that I don't like Sky is that she is failing to advocate for the things that that character should advocate in that space. Mm-hmm. Okay. She wins in this episode by becoming more like them. Okay. And mm-hmm. less like herself. Right, right. Because her job is to be the outsider coming in, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun Mm -hmm. to watch. Don't get me wrong. It is fun to watch. Mm -hmm. But it is also, I don't know, it just undermines her. Like, Sky doesn't win by being Sky here. She wins by being... By being May. May light. Yeah, yeah. But it's so great, though. Like, I love how, you know, she gets sent out. She takes it so personally that May sends her out. But obviously, as we find out, May did that deliberately to get Sky off the plane because that's where she's going to be able to do her best work. She thinks on her feet. You know, she finds a way to get access to the information that she needs. You know, she steals the douchebag's car. Then she crashes it to get to his house. You know, then she steals his car again. We've got the the thing that I love, too, is that she sees the license plate, dollar bills, y'all, on his car. And that is such a fantastic douchebag marker. Like, you know exactly who that guy is from that one little detail. I absolutely loved that. I loved when she got the outfit and she's pretending to be Agent May. When she grabbed grabs his phone and locks down his phone and says, that's my badge. Like, (laughs) I loved it. I thought she was great. And I loved it when she went and she found Coulson and like how how deeply invested they are in each other. They have this very strong like father daughter relationship, which I I love seeing that develop. Um, So, yeah, I I actually really liked Sky in this episode. I I like that she's being given things to do. And I like Mm -hmm. the dodge with May very much, you know. It's just, like I say, I just, I want, I am apparently wanting things from Sky in this show that this show is not prepared to give me. I think maybe, yeah. They're taking and her in this a different point, space. <laughs> now, to be fair to me, it's the thing that they made me think she was going to be. No, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. All right. No, I completely agree. So I'm very entertained. Like, I'm very right. entertained. But as far as making me like Sky, I'm like, well, neat, cool. Like, we already had Maylight. His name was Ward. Right. <laughs> what are you doing here? You know. Right. So right. I, I'm prepared to also be told that I am wrong. So in this case, at me. No, right. I think, I'm ready. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think they do set you up to expect something different from Sky. And I think that what they end up giving you, especially as we move forward, like I think is going to be interesting. But now that I think about it, like I think I felt the same way in the early days. You know, I'm so used to it now because I've seen this whole series like three or four times at this point. Right. You know, like I've watched the whole thing through. I love, I love this series. Um, but like, I get what you're, I get what you're saying. I understand where your disappointment comes from. But I think that like I have accepted Sky for what she is and what she will be. So for me, going back through here, not having like thwarted expectations, which I think mm-hmm. are fair expectations to have, I enjoy it a lot more. And that's the thing. I have no idea at this point what they're making her into. 
Yeah, right. I, I, mm-hmm. I couldn't predict to you. Yes. Based on this, like not even in the broadest strokes, I couldn't predict to you what Sky's character or purpose is going to be at this right. point. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I definitely, I like it. I, I love the moment, too, where she's on the phone with Simmons. Right? She's yes. like, don't try to lie. You are terrible at this. Remember our safe word. And the Simmons goes, manscaping? Oh, my God. <laughs> and immediately, I shouldn't have said that. Like, I shouldn't it's... have said that. Oh, yeah. Because I really like that. That's a callback, right? I mean, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. just say anything. And and instead, Simmons shoots. Sit well. Right. <laughs> it's like, you're really bad at this. So don't try. Just listen is great. Right. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's hilarious. And I love seeing Simmons, uh, you know, in in that space where she doesn't have capability in that one area. It's really, really fun. Um, So, okay, one of the things that I loved and thought was so incredibly creepy, but so like beautifully done is this like, you know, abandoned bomb shelter village, bomb test village environment right out in the middle of the desert where there are all these dolls, you know, these uh, these mannequins set to, you know, withstand whatever the blast testing was. Um, I love that whole aesthetic. I think it's so incredibly creepy. Um, I love that Coulson, you know, before they got to him, before Raina got to him, had tried to escape, that he took down one of the guards. Still infinitely capable. So incredibly capable and never giving up, you know? Yeah, never giving up, which I really like. And we have this, you know, Poe talks to him about his his history. You know, um, we find out that his he's got daddy issues, which, of course, everybody, every man has to have daddy issues because how are we going to make them vulnerable if it's not about daddy issues? I don't know. Um, okay, I want to his... say how yes. much I agree with that and use mm-hmm. an, a counterexample in this very show. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mike Peterson, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I mean, I mm-hmm. guess being a dad. Yeah, that's different. But that's being, different. Like right? when you are the dad, that's different because mm-hmm. you have the responsibility for your kid. But one of the things that we do and we've been doing, you know, for a long time, but especially like if you look at any of the Tom Cruise movies from the 80s. Right. It's always yes. a shorthand for vulnerability. It's a it's a men aren't allowed to be vulnerable culturally, right? We're not we're not allowing men to express emotions or to have emotions. And yet, in order to write a, a protagonist, we have to give this character vulnerability, right? So what do we do? We give him an overbearing dad, a disapproving father. We give him daddy issues, right? And it's like this shortcut that we can give men vulnerability that we want to give them without actually having to make them feel anything or, you know, it's all about this, this overbearing dad. So for me, when a man is giving daddy issues um if they did it in lost with Shepard, right yeah. you know um yeah. they did, there's a whole bunch of like it's just it's just all over the place and i'm not saying that having you know issues with your parents or whatever can't be a source of vulnerability but i think that it's it's a well that we go to so much with men because we don't want to give them other sources of vulnerability the only other source of vulnerability that they tend to have is that they're in love with a woman and either the woman doesn't want them or the woman is fridged to motivate them you know it's just it's kind of this thing that i I, I just those are spaces that you know we can have and be vulnerable and still be a man you know like as though somehow vulnerability detracts from masculinity which culturally I think is a thing that we have believed 
and that we have yeah, imposed definitely. on men, which is one of the things that men, you know, really suffer from culturally. Things that we do culturally to men are bad as as are the things that we do culturally to women, you know. Um, but this is one of the things that like, you know, bringing up the daddy issues is something that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But the thing is, we don't play with that. That doesn't go anywhere. I don't think we ever mentioned Colson's dad ever again. Hooray. You know, so at least there's that. Yeah. And in a way... I appreciate that because we never have to deal with it. And in a way, it kind of right. makes it worse because you're right about daddy issues as shortcut mm-hmm. for male mm-hmm. protagonist vulnerability. And yeah. it just lampshades how much of a shortcut it is that we never talk about it again. We just needed a thing right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's better that we don't ever come back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Poe is really ham-handed with all of this stuff once Raina gets to him she's five minutes she's got him turned around you know she's like I want to know the secret you want to know the secret why don't you hop in you know let's go ahead yeah. and see where this takes us you know pose a she's blunt so instrument yeah yeah um so I love that and then we have you know this real vulnerability that we get from Coulson, which has yes. been beautifully expressed throughout the season, which is this desire to know what happened to him. What has changed him? He knows that he's changed. He knows that he's different, but he doesn't quite understand why. And then in this episode, we start to get that answer, you know, and when mm-hmm. Sky comes to get him, you know, he's like, it wasn't real. They were just messing with my head. You know, and he's just kind of like covering all of that up. But you can see that vulnerability is still there and that he's struck with it. And then when he ends up in the doctor's car, right, asking questions about this, right, and they have that conversation. And we have another Whedon Easter egg. We have uh, Ron Glass, who was Shepard Book in Firefly, (laughs) who's playing Dr. Stryton here. Um, And he's talking about, we wanted to restore the man you'd once been. You lost your will to live. We tried to give it back. All of that stuff, right? Um, It's so lovely. And Coulson's vulnerability there is lovely. So in one episode, we both display the worst ways to do vulnerability for men and the best way to do vulnerability for for anyone, you know, a man or woman, right? You know, you reach into, he is struggling with a sense of his own identity. He doesn't know who he is. And identity, of course, is one of the great sources of vulnerability. So you mess with this man's sense of himself, of his identity, of how he's changed, and more importantly, why he's changed the way that he has. And he needs to find that out. I love that. Yes, I agree. Um, I think if I'm being generous about daddy issues, that is Mm -hmm. the identity issue that men are culturally allowed to have who am i if i don't want to be my father or if i don't know my father Mm -hmm. and then right here as you say by the end we're like no this is how you actually do identity things he does not know who he is anymore Mm -hmm. yeah and that's terrifying it's a wonderful identity story for vulnerability. It's an, an absolute terrific example. And when I talk about, like, I talk a lot about vulnerability when I'm talking to writing students and all that kind of stuff and trying to explain. I always say fear is a source of vulnerability. They're like, yeah, we get it. I'm like, love is a source of vulnerability. Like, yeah, I get it. Shame. Yeah, we get it. And then I say identity and they all give me this blank look. You oh. know? And I'm like, but identity is honestly one of the most powerful sources of vulnerability because if you don't know who you are, Like that messes with your entire sense of self, everything that is so hugely vulnerable to be disconnected from who you are. And we see that a little bit with Skye, too, because she's looking for her parents Mm -hmm. and trying to find that connection to figure out who she is. But no way does it work anywhere near as well for Skye as it's working for Coulson in the storyline. 
So I think that kind of covers most of the stuff that I had to talk about in The Magical Place. Uh, We do end up with the coda that we talked about before with Mike Peterson, of course, waking up, traumatized, covered in burn marks, right? His Mm, leg is gone and he's got the eyeball, right? Yes. Stand by for instructions. That is creepy and wonderful and horrible, you know, all of that stuff. It is... um, yeah, I just I I love it. I think that it's it's such a great place to take Mike Peterson, who is trying so hard to be a hero. You know, it's I just I love it. And now he's under somebody else's control. Faced with again just a whole new series of unknown impossible choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 No, it's it's really really good. So, um, is there anything else? Now, I have a handful of Whedon Easter eggs. I think most of which I've addressed. I got J. August Richards, who starred in Angel. I got Ron Glass, who starred in Firefly. Uh, there's one thing I didn't mention: the when he wakes up saying "Did I fall asleep?" is actually what the dolls in Dollhouse said after being rebooted. So that also is a Whedon reference. And uh, Marissa Tancheron and Jed Whedon both uh, actively worked on a rope for Dollhouse as well. Um, so that's kind of where they cut their teeth. So that was kind of fun to see that. Um, did you have any Marvel? Easter eggs because I didn't see any <laughs> yeah I really didn't um mm-hmm. I, I'm prepared again to be added at some point because mm-hmm. I am watching these and I'm very seriously watching these but they're also not my favorite so right yeah um, some details may slip past me all right okay but no I mean I think yeah. I whatever if it counts as Easter eggs it's just the the building up from these smaller pieces that the rest of the MCU gives us which we talked yeah. about a lot and I yeah. like it yeah, no, it's good stuff. I like being connected to that broader MCU universe. It's really fun. Um, all right, so then I guess we're back to favorite parts. What's your favorite part? My favorite part is the part of the ongoing realization of what Tahiti really was to Coulson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the place I want to, I mean, the, 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 the special effects are very good. His vulnerability is very good, but the place I want to drill down on that just impressed the hell out of me and is now Mm -hmm. my favorite part of these episodes is how the dialogue Mm -hmm. from Tahiti is the same as the dialogue in the operating room. Yeah. But the Mm -hmm. delivery and the context changes everything. Absolutely. That's brilliant. It goes from Mm -hmm. this very comfortable, pleasant situation to just cold and awful and yeah. it is absolutely chilling to realize how much they used his existing memory and then built things on top of it. Right. It's mm-hmm. it's awful. Like, it's violating. It's terrible. And that's just a lot of visceral feeling to get across to me as a viewer Yeah. with a relatively small handful of lines. No, it's brilliant. It's It's physical gaslighting. It's physical, chemical oh. gaslighting. They're taking reality and they're warping it into something else and making him believe that reality is something other than what it is. So it is it is a mental violation. It's a spiritual violation. Like it is creepy as hell. So beautifully done. All right. You got to top me, Lonnie. You are into <laughs> this show. So tell me what's your favorite part. <laughs> oh, God. You know, I have a real hard time choosing between Mike Peterson and Raina. because they're both incredible but i have to say i think that i was i was most touched by mike's struggle by that moment when he's having that conversation with with colson about his son you know and about he does everything for ace but he won't go see him you know because the last time he saw me i was a monster Mm -hmm. dealing with that 
and again, like, you know, Mike's vulnerability comes from identity. It's a fantastic vulnerability, you know. It's great vulnerability for a man. We can let men have emotions. It's something we're getting to now. So we're allowing ourselves <laughs> to do much more interesting things with our male characters. Um, but I also love, you know, these two guys sitting and having this, this emotional connected conversation. You know, um, it's really nice. I love, I love that whole broader struggle with what it means to be a hero, that this is something that he is living in everyday mm -hmm. moments, what it means to be a hero. And, um, and seeing that from him, I just, I absolutely love it. And it's one of my favorite things about this character. Whenever we see him, he has that struggle and it's so great. And it sets up that parting scene mm -hmm. between Mike and Coulson, mm -hmm. where Coulson forgives him for the betrayal. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I you believe no other Coulson choice. is mm -hmm. completely sincere in that moment. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and he gets it. And we know he gets it. Like, I can read into that sincerity from that conversation where yep. Coulson so understood the struggle between Mike and Ace. Yeah. No, it's it's wonderful. I love it. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I'm at Lonnie Diane Rich and Joshua is at Joshua Unruh and the hashtag is Listen Up A-Holes. This episode of Listen Up A-Holes was brought to you by Chipperish producer Alyssa from Dallas. Alyssa supports Chipperish media at the power producer level and as a reward gets a dollar bills y'all personalized license plate. Thank you, Alyssa, and thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions and makes Listen Up A-Holes a thing. Yes, to find out how you, too, can become a Listen Up A-Holes producer, visit the Patreon links in the show notes. Producer-level support options are available at both Pulp Diction Productions and Chipperish Media. You can also show your support by leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in the conversation. Links are in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. episodes 12 to 14, Seeds, Tracks, and Tahiti. Until then, obviously we rigged this little beauty before we knew there was a dimension-jumping psychopath in the mix. Now, the Wrecker has an indestructible magical crowbar. No, it's fantastic. Oh my god. <laughs> it's cracking me up so much. The indestructible magical crowbar. It's all true. <laughs> These oh are four god. color facts, Lonnie, <laughs> not four color opinions. <laughs> Sorry. And my chair, I don't know if you can hear it. It's squeaky. It needs like WD-40 and I'm laughing so hard the chair is squeaking. I gotta stop. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right. Go. Wait. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, don't be sorry. This is my best reaction yet. Modoc did not come near indestructible magical crowbar. Guy, like somebody thinks is Loki. <laughs> He's just this crowbar guy. All right, I'm sorry.